Good morning, Beacon Church, and welcome to another Sunday on the Sofa. Great to have you with us. If this is your first time, welcome. It's great to have you join us. We pray you'll be richly blessed as a result. Maybe you've been introduced to us via a friend, sent the link, or maybe you just found us through Google. Uh, however means you arrived here, it's great to have you with us. We're so pleased you could, and uh, we pray that, uh, like I say, that you'd be richly blessed and that you'll know something more of Jesus as a result. Uh, this morning, uh, John Way is going to be speaking on the next part of our Hebrews series. We're working through a book of the Bible called the Book of Hebrews, which is a rich treasure trove, as he'll allude to himself in a moment. And uh, there's so much packed in there, and we're just digging into it and just finding out more about uh, Jesus, all he is, and just uh, coming to the fuller understanding that Jesus is all. He trumps everything. Uh, so looking forward to that in a minute and then what we do afterwards uh, there's opportunity to celebrate Jesus as a result through um, songs on the individual Vimeo video link page in the details there'll be some uh, suggested songs on YouTube or when we uh, those of us who can join on Zoom on Sunday morning to watch this live together we'll sometimes sing the same songs as well uh, but first before we do um, before I hand over to John, it'd be good to do something a little bit different this week. Uh, some of you may remember in the past we've recited creeds together. That there are ancient proclamations of the great God we come to know, love, and serve. And uh, this morning we're going to we're going to recite a Latin hymn. Don't worry, it's not in Latin, but uh, there is something called the Te Deum. It's a it's a Latin hymn from just before about 400 AD, and it is rich. And in English, it's just this title just means you, O God, we praise. And uh, the words are going to come up on the screen. Recite it with me. I'll be speaking it out. Um, recite it with me if you want. Join me. If you want to just listen and just uh, let the words just kind of seep into you and just turn them into a prayer, whatever's right for you at home, then do so. Uh, just join me whichever way you're comfortable with and, and want to participate with. So, um, yeah, here we go. Let's recite the Te Deum. We praise you, O God. We acknowledge you to be the Lord. All the earth worships you, the eternal Father. To you, all angels, all the powers of heaven, the cherubim and seraphim, sing an endless proclamation, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory. The glorious company of apostles praise you. The noble fellowship of prophets praise you. The white-robed army of martyrs praise you. Throughout the world, the Holy Church acclaims you. Father of infinite majesty, your honourable, true and only Son and the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. You are the King of glory, O Christ. You are the everlasting Son of the Father. When you took it upon yourself to deliver mankind, you did not abhor the virgin's womb. You overcame the sting of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. You sit at the right hand of God in the glory of the Father. We believe that you shall come again to be our judge. We therefore ask you to help your servants, whom you have redeemed with your precious blood. Bring us with your saints to everlasting glory. What a mighty God we get the privilege of getting to know through Jesus. I'm just going to pray and then I'm going to hand over to John. Father, we thank you that you are a God who not only is holy and other and so much bigger, you're infinite than everything else. And yet you, you deem it a good thing out of your love 
you, you, you made a way for us to know you, to know the unknowable through your son. We thank you so much. Lord, as we hear from your word right now, may by Holy Spirit, may you reveal something fresh to us, something new. This is your living word. May it truly come alive this morning for each one of us. Burn in our hearts. Let us see you in a richer way and give us what we need to do next to keep following you. Just help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Over to John. Hello, everyone. Uh, we come to number six in our preaching series um, in the letter to the Hebrews. And today we're looking at chapter 5, verse 11 through to chapter 6, verse 12. <clears throat> uh, we have some guidebooks of walks around East Kent. They are all circular routes that start and finish in the same place. Very often there are points on the route where you can take a detour, leave the main path and have a look at say a local church or other interesting feature before returning to the main path to complete the walk. Today we are dealing with a detour or digression. As we've been hearing the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. Jesus is all. To me it's like a treasure chest the deeper you dig, the more glories you find. But as we will see later, we do have to dig. Just surface inspection will not reveal these wonders. It's all about his uniqueness and superiority to all the previous revelations of God over the centuries of Jewish history. He is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses and superior to the priests who were descended from Moses' brother Aaron and who were authorised to offer sacrifices required by the law. Jesus is referred to as our great high priest who fulfilled all the requirements of the law but with a difference for he was not only the priest but was also the sacrifice as he offered himself once for all. However, the writer delights to tell us and Bob reminded us last week that for all that was glorious about Jesus, he was made like us, so that he could take our place and die for our sins and sympathise with our weaknesses. We come to a section in Hebrews which begins in chapter 5 and ends in chapter 7, where we are introduced to the mysterious character of Melchizedek, who met Abraham and blessed him. You can read about that in Genesis 14. I won't say any more about him because he is the subject of Steve's preach next week. Our verses today are sandwiched in the middle of this teaching about Melchizedek and are on a side, a digression, a break in the writer's train of thought before he returns to his main theme. So then, chapter 5, 11 to chapter 6, 12. In this passage, we have four sections. First we have a reprimand, a telling off, a rebuke. Next we have an exhortation with a strong and earnest advice. Then we have a severe or strong warning. Lastly we have an encouragement. Rather than read the whole passage we'll take this section by section. Firstly the rebuke then, verses 11 to 14. About this, and what he's talking about Melchizedek, he says, about this 
we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He begins by telling his readers that he hasn't finished with Melchizedek, but he is not sure that they're getting what he is saying. Why? Because in spite of the fact that they are Jews and ought to be tuned into this stuff, they are ignorant, which stems from laziness. How can he explain these deep truths about Jesus when they are dull of hearing? They're not good at studying the word of God. They've not moved on from those basic truths that enabled them to become Christians, as important as they are. We may feel it does us good, as people already say, to repeatedly hear powerful gospel messages, perhaps aimed at the unsaved in the audience, and say a hearty amen uh, each time. But if this is our only spiritual food, the writer says we're still infants. The consequence is that we will not be well equipped to deal with the pressures of life and make sound judgments concerning the rights and wrongs of issues. He says distinguishing good from evil. But this is to remain infants. When we are raising children, we start by telling them what to do in almost every situation. But as we train them, our aim is for them to reach a point when they're able to make good decisions for themselves without our help. Then they are mature and we love it when we see them making their way in life with good decisions. This is how it is with God. He wants his children to become mature and well taught in the word of God. Of course, in our prayers, we're always taught to him about everyday things that trouble us. But the writer says that by regular, constant study of God's word, we are not only informed, but more importantly, transformed from infants to adults who are able to teach others. I'm so grateful that I've had the discipline of having to prepare for preaching because it forces me to dig deep into God's word. Also, I've had the habit for years of repeatedly reading through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, a few chapters a day. I still find parts are quite hard, but I read them anyway and trust that one day God will give me the understanding. I believe that I am allowing truth to wash over me and wash through me and hopefully transform me. With all the ungodliness that surrounds us and the media messages that bombard us, we need to let our minds be constantly renewed by God's word. Well, that was the telling off. Now the strong advice, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He reminds his hearers 
of the solid foundational Christian truth or doctrine, which although of immense importance, once that it has been well and truly laid, there is no need to go on repeating the process, but to go on to maturity. He mentions six things which may have been regarded as essential features of, features of instruction for young converts. Now, because we're meant to move on from these things, I'll only comment on them briefly. So the first one is then repentance from dead, dead works. Repentance is a call to all who will follow Jesus and was at the heart of his message and that of John the Baptist before him. It is a change of heart, a change of mind that leads to a changed life. It's a turning from our old life to a, a life of obedience to God. But dead works are specifically mentioned here. Remember, he is speaking to Jews who had all their lives believed that they were righteous by observing the law. But now as Christians, they were made righteous and justified by God by believing that Jesus died for their sins, not, trying, not by trying to keep the law. Doing good works as a way of trying to be right with God is contrary to the gospel and therefore dead works. We now do good works, which God has prepared for us out of love for God in response to the righteousness he freely gives us. Secondly, faith towards God. Just leaving dead works behind will likely not accomplish anything. It must be coupled with faith in God. It's not only that the old life has to be abandoned, but a new life of faith in God must be embraced. Repentance and faith always go together. Thirdly, instruction about washings. Some uh, translations use the word baptisms. This may be a, re a reference to teaching which distinguishes Christian baptism from John the Baptist baptism and the various religious washings prevalent among the Jews and is highlighted by Paul's statement to the church at Ephesus, um, where he says in chapter 4 and verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Fourthly, the laying on of hands. This is probably related to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and commissioning of leaders in the church. Fifthly, the resurrection of the dead. Some Jewish leaders, namely the Sadducees, did not believe in the resurrection, and this may have influenced some of his hearers. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking to a church where some seem to have a problem with the resurrection of believers, is at pains to spell out the absolute importance of firstly, Christ's resurrection, and as a consequence, our resurrection. These two are inextricably linked that he says in verse uh, 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our teaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then lastly, number six, eternal judgment. In chapter nine of Hebrews, the reality of eternal judgment is nailed. Verse 27 says, 
It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Judgment is featured strongly in Jesus' teaching, where speaking of the end of the age, he says, He will be the judge of all men. For all the terrifying reality of judgment, as described by Jesus, and also where in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 27, the writer speaks of a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, presumably the adversaries of God. Nevertheless, those who are trusting Jesus need not fear. He tells us, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's John 5:24. For all the importance of these foundational truths, the writer urges his hearers and us to go on to maturity and develop an appetite for more solid food. We now come to the severe warning. In verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6, we, uh, we have uh, here something that has confused and troubled many Christians. On the one hand, they believe and are comforted that the true Christian cannot lose their salvation and would subscribe to the slogan, once saved, always saved. This belief is supported by the words of Jesus and the apostles. For example, speaking of believers, Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It's God himself who is the author of our salvation and he will complete it. However, we can't ignore that here in this passage there is a severe warning which seems to be referring to believers who have apparently made an excellent beginning in their Christian lives, but who are not only immature or struggling in their faith, but have become fierce opponents of the Christian gospel. They become what are referred to as apostates. They have not only drifted away, but have hardened their hearts against the very grace of God. They despise God's gifts, they reject God's Son, and they forfeit God's blessing. So does this passage teach that a believer can lose his or her salvation? Let's read it. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Let me say at this point, 
um, if you are worried about your eternal security. If you're concerned that you may have lost your first love for the Lord and drifted away from prayer and reading the word, even feeling that church no longer um, is the priority in your life and wonder if this passage refers to you and whether you were really saved in the first place, I would say relax. It doesn't because your very concern about your spiritual condition puts you outside this description. The person spoken of here does not care about their spiritual condition because they have consciously and deliberately and completely abandoned the faith and have become enemies of the gospel and denounced Jesus and held him up to contempt just as the mob did to him on that first Good Friday. So extreme is their hatred. The writer says they are crucifying again the Son of God. And the language used here is in the present tense. They keep on putting him to open shame. They have identified themselves with Christ's persecutors as if they were in the mob crying, crucify him, crucify him. It's worth noting the context of this letter. Not only were the Christians being persecuted by the Romans, but also by their fellow countrymen who were still enemies of the gospel. There would have been great pressure to renounce their Christian faith and return to Judaism, thus siding with God's enemies. But the truth is, no matter how far we fall, God is loving and gracious and there is always a way back. But the journey must start with repentance, which is an acknowledgement that we have sinned and fallen short of God's best for us. And this must be coupled with a genuine desire to once again walk in his ways. But if we have deliberately become God's enemies, holding Christ up to ridicule, if this is our entrenched position, then repentance is impossible and our life cannot bear fruit for God and our salvation is in jeopardy. Although the writer paints an alarming picture of the apostate, it is not a condemnation of his hearers, but a warning because he is in effect saying, although you should take this as a warning, I don't believe this about you. So we come to the encouragement then. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Just as, the, just as apostasy bears no fruit for God, leaving the person outside of God's blessing, so the life of love and faithfulness which marked out these Christians will not be overlooked by God, but will have its reward. Not that it comes easy, because there is a final encouragement here to work hard and persevere 
so that they make sure that they inherit all that God has promised them in Christ. In concluding then, let's look back to our question. Are there circumstances in which a true believer can lose their salvation? Do verses 4 to 8 teach that they can? Well, as a first principle, we do not build a doctrine on a single scripture. This means that whenever we come across a difficult passage in the Bible, we take careful note of what it has to say, and then we make sure we compare it with other scriptures that relate to the same subject. Therefore, alongside warning passages like this one, we must place clear teaching of scripture concerning the security of believers. The many promises in the New Testament uh, provide us with abundant evidence of our unshakable inheritance in Christ. And this letter has such assurances. For example, the writer in chapter 12 tells us that although God will cause all things to be shaken, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So why the warning? Some have suggested that the writer is putting a hypothetical case. I don't believe this is so, and many commentators would agree with that. It's real enough. The warning is real enough. I don't know if you've noticed something like this, but at the end of a railway platform, you might see the sign, danger, do not touch the live rail. For most people who read the notice, it wouldn't enter their heads to try and cross the line there. So they don't have to worry about it. Also, the railway authorities don't have to worry that there will be casualties. Nevertheless, the danger is real and the warning still stands. Phil Moore, in his commentary on this passage, says this. The writer to the Hebrews is warning believers about the dangers of falling away from their faith because that is how God ensures that no true believer will fall away from their faith. He warns us that little acts of compromise, our equivalent of going back to the synagogues, are absolutely deadly. He urges us to hold on to the Saviour who holds firmly onto us. Anything else is simply unthinkable. Let's close with those, that closing verse of our passage, or two verses. Verse 11, it says, And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. To the glory of God. Amen. Well, as John said, it's a it's a treasure trove. You just keep on digging, you keep finding more. Um, but just what struck me most was that quote right at the end um, when John was uh, quoting from Phil Moore, who says, uh, "Let's hold on to the Saviour, who holds firmly onto us." This is a God who loves us so much; He wants to give us warnings and even reprimands where necessary, and of course, gentle loving encouragements to keep pressing on and pressing in there is more about him to know we can never get to the bottom we can never fathom fathom the bottom of, of who he is we can never get to the end of him 
but let's keep on pressing on. Let's keep holding on to him. And that's where we discover he's already clinging onto us. Let's celebrate this amazing Jesus. There's, like I say, there's a couple of songs in the links uh, below this video. Um, and if you've got any questions about today's passage, about the Bible, about Christian, the Christian faith in general, about Jesus, anything you want to know, please do get in touch. There'll be an email address coming up in just a sec. We'd love to hear from you. We love talking with friends or, or new friends. Let's make new friendships and get to know you more. And let's talk. Let's find out more about him together. Please do get in touch. Be blessed. Have a great week. Look to Jesus.